Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office in central Hong Kong as we together study the Come Follow Me lessons for June 29th through July 5th. And this week we will be discussing chapters 23 through 29 in the book of Alma. Well, really not a lot to update here in Hong Kong. We look forward to going back to church uh, starting uh, in just a uh, little more than a week. Uh, July 5th is the day that's been targeted. We'll, of course, be abiding by social distancing rules. Uh, our branch will be limited up, will be divided up into uh, two different branches, and I think that's probably, or two, not two different branches, two different uh, time slots for meetings. And We'll be alternating weeks going forward. I think from my understanding, that's probably similar to what's going on at churches uh, throughout the world. So God, hopefully we'll be able to get over this soon and get back to normal worshiping. It's kind of hard to remember what that's like, but uh, here we are. And let's hope the uh, uptick, the recent uh, increases in uh, cases uh, pretty much worldwide, although in Hong Kong there hasn't really been any, at least that I've heard of. Uh, reported over the last little bit. We seem to be pretty safe here. Um, but, uh, you know, the world still remains in a very, very unique situation, and let's hope it, uh, it is unique and isn't uh, something that becomes a, a pattern uh, for the future. Well, last week, if you recall, we started the stories of the sons of Messiah teaching the gospel to the Lamanites. We spoke how King uh, Lamoni was converted, and then his father was also converted, as were many others, uh, due to the efforts of the sons of Messiah, uh, especially uh, Aaron and Ammon and, and their efforts. Uh, and this week we will continue and uh, really finish off the lesson of their conversion uh, and uh, the teachings, the missionary efforts of the sons of Messiah. And we'll see this uh, lesson really focuses on really not just missionary work. I think last week's lesson was a great example of, uh, you know, how to teach the gospel to people or how really to be a missionary. And we learned about the importance of service and also uh, the importance of uh, the hearts of the individuals that receive the message, how they have to be prepared and how they have to be humble enough to recognize that the worldview that they were previously espousing uh, needed some tweaks and in some cases really needed to be brought down um, completely. And uh, we'll see some instances of those uh, as well. But uh, this week really more uh, focuses on these, this, this week's lessons focuses more on the emotions that come with being uh, a missionary. And it's interesting to contrast as we will uh, the feelings that uh, the sons of Messiah have as a result of their missionary efforts with those of Alma, who spent his time not obviously with the Lamanites uh, converting them as much, but trying to help 
the Nephites convert and, you know, with varying degrees of success. And we get two beautiful chapters here, chapters 26 and 29, which really are uh, the heartfelt emotions of, of two uh, of the individuals. We have uh, Aaron in chapter 26, and then we have Alma in chapter 29 sharing their uh, emotions. And so really talk a lot about uh, feelings and emotions in today's lesson. So with that, let's go ahead and, uh, and, and dive in. Uh, if you recall, we uh, finished last, last week's lesson with uh, the king over all the Lamanites. As far as we know, this is the top guy among the Lamanites, and he is converted to the gospel uh, through the example of Ammon and uh, through the teaching of Aaron. And if you recall, we, we finished last week's lesson uh, with, with following the beautiful progression that this king makes from uh, being willing to give up half of his kingdom when he saw his life was in jeopardy to uh, giving, being willing to give up all of his kingdom when he saw that his spiritual life was in jeopardy. And then finally, as he called upon the Lord humbly, he realized that the sacrifice that he had to make was to give up his sins, not to give up his kingdom, not to give up his earthly possessions. We talked about those are, those are already the Lord's to begin with, but it's our hearts that the Lord wants, wants from us. That's the sacrifice that we have to make. A broken heart and a contrite spirit is what the Lord wants us to put on uh, our altars uh, that we make to him. And so with this Lamanite king converted, uh, he then gives special privilege for the sons of Messiah to preach the gospel all throughout uh, the Lamanite kingdom and to begin uh, establishing churches with, uh, without persecution uh, that, that, that will not be persecuted. Uh, and really an amazing transformation that has happened here, uh, going from the Lamanites who hated everything about religion. Remember when the king is first met by uh, his son, Lamoni, and uh, Ammon as well. His first reaction is, why would you hang out with this Nephite? And why would you even bother to listen to their religion? It's, religion is nothing but a tool through which they try to trick you and try to gain influence and power over you and to, and to take your resources from you. We, we see it progressing from that to, you know, and, and here it seems very quickly, we don't know exactly how long it was. It's important to remember that the sons of Messiah were out in their missionary labors for 14 years. So these stories that we hear uh, didn't, didn't happen in, in a short time, but took 14 years to unfold in the way that we, that we see them play out here. Um, but the po point is the king went from that attitude of religion is nothing but a means of, of tricking and taking advantage of other people to understanding the importance of religion uh, and granting the sons of Messiah essentially free reign throughout the kingdom to go about and preach the gospel uh, and establish churches. And with that, let's uh, read verses 6 and 7 of chapter 23. And as sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many as believed, or as many as were brought to the knowledge of the truth, through the preaching of Ammon and his brethren, according to the spirit of revelation and of prophecy, and the power of God, working miracles in them, yea, I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching, and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. And they became, for they became a righteous people, they did lay down the weapons of their rebellion, and they did not fight against God any more, neither against any of their brethren. So we see these uh, beautiful summary of the power that the gospel had uh, over these people 
that, uh, that, that were converted, and they were so powerful was their conversion that they never fell away. And you can see it, that's really emphasized by Mormon uh, in the words here. He says, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. That's Mormon really heightening the stakes here, saying this is the honest truth here. All of them that heard, all of them that heard, that believed in the preachings and were converted, never did fall away. And for that, let's turn to a, 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 a statement from Elder Bednar uh, that he gave in General Conference uh, back in uh, 2010, uh, sorry, 2012, in, uh, in October of 2012, in which he stated, two major elements are described in these verses. The knowledge of the truth, which may be interpreted as testimony, and converted unto the Lord, which I understand to be conversion to the Savior and his gospel. Thus, the powerful combination of both testimony and conversion unto the Lord produced firmness and steadfastness and provided spiritual protection. They never did fall away and surrendered the weapons of their rebellion, that they did not fight against God anymore, to set aside cherished weapons of rebellion, such as selfishness, pride, disobedience, requires more than merely believing and knowing. Conviction, humility, repentance, and submissiveness precede the abandonment of our weapons of rebellion. Do you and I still possess weapons of rebellion that keep us from becoming converted unto the Lord? If so, then we need to repent now. I love this idea that we each possess weapons of rebellion. And what is necessary for us to put before we are willing to put these weapons of rebellion down? Well, Mormon teaches us, and uh, Elder Bednar uh, reiterates it here. Uh, you have to be uh, believe in the preaching. You have to believe in truth. You have to be willing to accept those correct doctrines. Uh, and then you have to be converted unto the Lord, which is more than just simply believing. That's a desire. That's a humility. That is a, a, a trust and a faith in Jesus Christ that uh, his teachings are true and that he is true and that he is able to keep his promises and if we are able to believe in Christ then we too uh, can put down our weapons of rebellion and it's, it's worth thinking about what are some of the weapons of rebellion that you and I hold on to what are those few things that we're not quite willing to let go of and one that that I will suggest that we might not always think about is uh, is the idea of certainty. Might that be, a, in some ways, a, a weapon of rebellion? And when I say that, I mean something that prevents us from truly turning our hearts to Jesus Christ and accepting him. Now, when we're talking about certainty, uh, we're talking about this idea that we have to have all the answers that we have to know everything. All of the pieces have to fit together perfectly in order to make sense. Now, often we in the church like to, I'm not going to use the word pretend, but we like to hold on to this idea that everything always perfectly fits together, that we have all of the answers, that our history is always explainable and always clean, and we are always able to provide some explanation as for what is going on. It's, I mean, it's my strong conviction that we don't know all the answers. 
I mean, we obviously know a lot. We know what the Lord has revealed to us. But we also believe that the Lord is yet to reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then on top of that, we also believe that faith serves an essential element of our lives. If we believe that we hold all the answers, or we believe that we are able to explain everything, there's really no room for faith in that belief. Uh, Faith, by definition, holds on and recognizes that there are some things that we just don't know yet. There are some things that, from our current point of view, don't make sense. And it honestly has to be that way. Uh, Anyone that believes that all of the pieces of the gospel, even the restored gospel, will always fit together perfectly and we're able to have that certainty, uh, from my point of view, is always going to be missing a little bit of something. It's always going to be missing that, that trust in God, that trust that says, you know what, God, I don't get this. There's this element here, something in history something in my life, something in the way that I feel about something or someone, uh, something that has happened to me that just does not fit your plan, does not fit my expectations, does not fit with the scripture stories that I've read or the songs that I sang in primary. But that's okay because I trust you, Lord. And even though those things don't fit together perfectly, I know you've got me. I know you've got my back. And that in my mind, is what we mean when we're talking about conversion unto the Lord. It's being able to say to God, as we kneel in prayer, this is hard. This doesn't make sense to me. This is confusing to me. These pieces don't seem to fit together like other people seem to explain that they are able to but I know that you love me and I know that you're there. And so I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to keep moving forward and I'm going to keep keeping the commandments. I'm going to keep going to church, keep reading my scriptures, keep struggling and trying to understand the best that I can, even though I recognize that there are things I'll never be able to understand in this life. And from my point of view, that is what conversion to the Lord means. It's putting down our weapons of rebellion, putting down our expectations that everything will be able to fit together perfectly and that we will have that certainty in this life because faith requires the acceptance that we will not always have that certainty. Now, of course, there's many, many other weapons of rebellions, and I don't think that was by any means probably what Elder Bednar was even talking about. Uh, That was just one that's meaningful to me. There's many other sins, many other uh, things that we should stop doing or should start doing that are also our weapons of rebellion. And we should strive to do the best we can to put those down uh, as well, to to get over them, to change, to repent, uh, so that those no, are no longer our weapons of rebellions, but rather uh, our strong spots. And that is all part of uh, the conversion to the Lord. All right, so we have uh, these Lamanites that the church has been established by the sons of Messiah. Um, And then there's this large group, this large contingency that is so strongly converted that they don't even want to be, they want a special name to designate themselves. And the name that they choose is Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And that's what they're known uh, for these next few chapters. 
And interestingly, at the beginning of chapter, at the end of chapter 23, it states that they start to have some interactions with uh, the Nephites. And because of that, uh, they're doing um, pretty well. I mean, from some ways, this is an economics lessons. They start to have, you know, whether trade or whatever it is, they're starting to have more interactions with the Nephites. And uh, because of that, uh, they are blessed by the Lord. Well, uh, tr turning to chapter 24 then, uh, two groups the, uh, that we're told about, the Amalekites and the Amulonites, uh, two groups that uh, previously had been uh, preached or proselytized by Aaron and uh, several others with him, who uh, rebelled and rejected the uh, message of the gospel that was given to them. Well, they're not happy uh, that the church is being established. And, that, uh, and, and, and so they are not happy with those Lamanites that are being converted, and they actually want to go ahead and, and destroy them. They're about ready to take up arms uh, against them. Now, when the sons of Messiah see what is uh, about to happen, they try to convince uh, the, the people, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, uh, that they should defend themselves, that they should uh, you know, take up arms to protect themselves from this group, this uh, group of Lamanites, uh, some of which are actually former Nephites. Um, and it's interesting, we don't know exactly who the Amalekites are, uh, we, but, but we know that they uh, are especially hard-hearted, and we are told they previously had, had known the truth. Uh, so it's, it's likely a, a group of Nephite dissenters that had some point um, come over. Uh, it, it's possible they were uh, the group uh, that came with Amlicite, uh, in Alma chapter 2, uh, chapters 2 and 3, uh, that came over and joined the Nephites. We're, we're not told exactly. Maybe, uh, again, maybe Amalekites and Amlicites are the same people. But regardless, we know these, these them and the Amulonites, and if you remember, Amulon was one of the priests of King Noah. Uh, they're especially hard-hearted and will not hear the gospel, and they are willing to take up arms against those that have been converted to the gospel. And so... Uh, and, and so the sons of Messiah try to persuade them to take up arms to defend themselves. And, and this is uh, the response uh, in chapter 24, verses 11 uh, through 13 that we're going to read now. This is the response uh, of these Lamanite converts when, uh, as their missionaries, try to convert, convince them uh, to take up arms to defend themselves. Uh, in verse 11 through 13, it says, And now behold, my brethren, since it has been all that we could do, as we were the most lost of all mankind, to repent of all our sins and the many murders which we have committed, and to get God to take them away from our hearts, for it was all we could do to repent sufficiently before God that he would take away our stain. Now, my best beloved brethren, since God hath taken away our stains and our swords have become bright, then let us stain our swords no more with the blood of our brethren." Behold, I say unto you, Nay, let us retain our swords, that they be not stained with the blood of our brethren. For perhaps if we should stain our swords again, they can no more be washed bright through the blood of the Son of our great God, which shall be shed for the atonement of our sins. Now, it's an interesting argument that the uh, that this Lamanite leader, this is uh, their, their king actually, uh, is, is saying. He's, he's, he's saying we, we can't risk killing anymore because all that we could do was to repent the first time 
which is an interesting argument because we know that, you, as far as we know, you're able to repent of sins multiple times. So I'm not, I don't think he's preaching a doctrine that says, you know, if you sin once, you're able to repent, but if you commit the same sin, well, uh, a second time, forget about it. There's, there's no hope for you. I think his, his greater concern was that if we were, he, he's, he knows the feelings that come with taking up uh, a sword. He knows the emotions that go along with being so angry at someone and fighting so hard that you would actually kill that person. And it's those emotions that come with that that he's afraid of because he's not afraid that the atonement of Jesus Christ would not potentially cover those. I believe he's afraid that if they let those emotions run wild again, they will be so far away from where they are right now that they may, might not ever make it back again, that they might not ever get to the point again where they are able to repent of their sins. So I don't believe he's teaching a, a, a theology that says the atonement will only cover uh, certain sins one time, but rather he's recognizing the long path that uh, repentance requires, especially for uh, an act such as taking the sword against another person, even if you are defending yourself. And so he doesn't even want to go there. He doesn't even want to risk that. Now, as we read these scriptures, uh, it's interesting to note that he says several times the idea that it's all we can do to repent. It's all that... uh, you know, it was, it was all that we can do uh, to, to have our swords washed in the blood. He keeps using this phrase, it's, it's all that we can do to, to change ourselves. And that reminds me of Second uh, Nephi chapter 25, verses 23, where uh, here Nephi says, For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So this Lamanite king recognizes that all that we can do does not mean that we have to go out every day and keep every commandment. And if we haven't done our absolute best, then the grace of God is not sufficient uh, to cover our sins because we haven't done all that we can do. He understands that all that we can do is to come unto Christ. All that we can do is to repent of our sins. All that we can do is to try the best that we can and to put down our weapons of rebellion and to do our best to follow Christ and to accept him and to be converted unto him. And once we have done that, then we leave the rest to God. So with this understanding, they go on to famously bury their weapons of war. Uh, Verses 17 through 19. And now it came to pass that when the king had made an end of these sayings and all the people were assembled together, they took their swords and all their weapons, which were used for the shedding of man's blood, and they did bury them deep up in the earth. And this they did, it being in their view a testimony to God and also to men, that they never would use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God, that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives, and rather than take away from a brethren, they would give unto them. And rather than spend their days in idleness, they would labor abundantly with their hands. And thus we see that when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. 
And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace, or they buried their weapons of war for peace. So I, I, I think the symbolism here is just so beautiful, that they are taking their weapons of war, they're taking these things that they know are a temptation to them that would lead them far away from where they want to be, and they bury them in the ground. Assumably they bury them deeply in the ground where they would never be able to uh, go back and retract them again. It reminds me of a talk that Elder Runlin gave in uh, last October's conference. And when he talked about uh, the saints in the Congo, he talked about a picture of a beautiful wa uh, waterfall that hung uh, in the temple, in the uh, Kinshasa temple in Congo. And the symbolism of that waterfall is that was a place where uh, as part of that society, when someone wanted to uh, get rid of, rid of an object that they had uh, idolized, they would take that object and they would throw it into the most treacherous part of the waterfall, a place where it would be literally impossible for them to ever uh, retrieve it, to ever go in and get it back. And that's the idea that these Lamanites, of, of what the Lamanites are doing here. They are taking their weapons these symbols of war, these symbols of their previous life, these symbols of, of sins that they've committed that they deeply, deeply regret and they know they never want to commit again. They're taking them and burying them deep in the earth so that they would not be able to get them again. And again, the symbolism here is beautiful. We talked about last week how uh, there was symbolism uh, and and every, if you recall, everyone falling down when they get so excited. And we talked about how there's symbolism be, be, that similar to baptism, with getting with, with falling down and then arising again, a new person. And I see uh, great symbolism here, also with baptism, uh, in their efforts to bury their weapons in the same way that they that they would take their weapons and bury them deep within the earth, so that they could start a new life without these temptations, so too do we take our previous selves into the baptismal font, burying ourselves into the water and then coming new, uh, com coming forth out of the water as, as new creatures. And we see that they entered into covenants here with God uh, that, uh, that th what they were doing uh, was, was symbolic to him and had meaning to them. And in fact, I love... Um, I love it in verse 18, where it says they did it being, in their view, a testimony to God and also to men. And I love the idea that it says, in their view. This was something that was personal to them. This is not something that they, everyone is expected to do. We're not expected to take all of our weapons and bury them. In fact, we see that wouldn't have worked very well because they needed the protection of the Nephites going forward. But for them... That was what they felt God expected them to do. And so for them, that is what they did. Because in their view, that's what God wanted them to do. So I think as we're thinking about in our lives, what are some of the things that we do that in our view symbolize to God uh, that we love him? Symbolize our commitment to him. Symbolize our unwavering desire to, to serve him and to be his now, these should not just be simply keeping the commandments, but rather little, you know, idiosyncratic things that we do, maybe that nobody else knows about, 
but in your mind, show, show your commitment to God. Show God how much you love him. I, I, I personally have a few little things. I think my effort in this, in this channel, I think, is, is for me, it's, it's one of those things. Certainly, I wouldn't expect everyone to create a YouTube channel uh, to, to, to try to share the gospel and share their testimony. But for me, in my view, that's something that I feel I should be doing. And, and, and so I do it. And sometimes it's kind of a pain to do it every single week. But whenever I, you know, kind of get discouraged or don't feel I want to do it anymore, I think to myself, you know, this is, this is the, way, the way that I show Heavenly Father, that, that one of the ways that I show Him that I love Him through this channel. Uh, also reminded of a story that Elder Bednar told. We'll see a lot of Elder Bednar in this lesson today. I love Elder Bednar. Uh, he told in, uh, in a talk that he gave to BYU, uh, to, to BYU students, uh, he, he told the story uh, about a stake president that went over to deliver a painting to uh, uh, an old patriarch uh, within his stake. And when he came over, he was surprised to see the patriarch had, uh, had put on a white shirt and a tie for his visit. And he told the patriarch, he said, you didn't have to do that for me to come. And the patriarch's response humbled the stake president. And he said, don't you know this is the only way that I can show God that I love him? He was so, he was, had, he had been incapacitated and in that he was unable to go to church every week. It was just too inconvenient. But he was able to put on his Sunday best. Even if he, even if he wasn't able to go to church. He was able to do just something small that to everyone else probably seems silly. But to him it showed God how much he loved him. And that was the whole point. So hopefully we can all, we all have those little things that we do that just, you know, there's, there's very, to other people seem random, but to us, show God how much we truly, truly love him. All right, so uh, the other Lamanites come, uh, they've buried their weapons of war and the other Lamanites come to attack them. And they lay down and they take it. And over a thousand Lamanites a thousand of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are killed. And when the other Lamanites see what they're doing, see that they're slaughtering people that have no interest in fighting them, a large number of them are so upset that they stop fighting and they too are converted unto the Lord. And, and why is that? Why would, why would they doing, why would them killing other people see like, wait, wait a minute, okay, I guess I'm going to be converted unto the Lord. Uh, you know, very, very interesting uh, chain of events that's going on here. These stories are very, very fascinating. To me, I think it gets down to the idea that when they saw that these religious people were so devout in their religion, and again, remember, these Lamanites had been taught from the time they were young that religion is a means of controlling, a means of tricking, a means of taking advantage of, the, of other people. But when they saw that that's not what religious people do, when they saw that religious people were so humble and so faithful and so trusting that they were willing to let their lives be, be taken rather than fight back, I think it rocked their worldview. And I think their hearts changed. Some of them, not all of them, but there were many of them who's, who humbly accepted that they had been wrong, who humbly recognized that their understanding of religion and belief in God was not consistent with the practices of these people. And so as we think about ways that we go about our lives, we need to make sure that we live up 
to the covenants that we have made with God. Those little strange things that we do, we got to make sure that we do them. And not only the little strange things, the big ones as well. We got to make sure we keep the commandments, that we love other people, that we serve other people, and that we show other people that, you know, we don't believe this simply because that's the household I grew up in or because I'm a, you know, brainwashed fool. But I believe this because it's good. And when other people see that goodness, their worldviews, their understanding, their misinterpretations and misunderstandings of religion might also change. And then you'll have a chance to do uh, amazing missionary work like these, like these anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. But of course, those, the Amalekites and the Amulonites, those who had, previous, had already had religion and then rejected it previously, um, we, we, we see here that their hearts were too hard. And watching innocent people uh, willingly be slaughtered was not enough to convince them uh, to make changes and, and to repent. And so we go to chapter 25. Interestingly, these Lamanites were so angry at themselves for, for killing and slaughtering many anti-Nephi-Lehi's that they figure they have to go take it out on someone, so they go and attack the, the Nephites. And the first Nephite city that they come upon is Ammonihah, and they destroy Ammonihah. As we talked about at the end of uh, the lesson of uh, Alma teaching, uh, attempts to teach the people of Ammonihah, we know in the end that they got destroyed, and this is how they got destroyed. It was wicked Lamanites who were so angry that they had killed innocent people. They said, well, we got to take it out on someone, and they go and attack the people of Ammonihah. Uh, very interesting. Um, interestingly, uh, many descendants of uh, Am Amulon are killed in these Nephite wars, and, uh, and so the remainder of the Amulonites flee into the wilderness, where they apparently take over some small villages and start killing people that believe in uh, the religious traditions that the Lamanites are starting to espouse. And then from their killing of these religious people, the rest of the Lamanites are angry with them, and so they wipe out the Amulonites completely. You know, very, very interesting dynamics among these groups. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we get it kind of bam, bam, bam. It seems like these things are happening quickly. Um, you know, no doubt there was, uh, you know, this was a long process that was drawn out over many months or many years. Um, and we get a very summarized version uh, through Mormon. But, uh, you know, very interesting that we see that these Amulonites, the descendants of the priests of King Noah that had rebelled, that had, uh, that had attacked Alma and his people, Alma the Elder, um, and taken advantage of them uh, and were so hard-hearted, uh, they are eventually punished and receive uh, the, the, their reward as promised by Abinadi. Uh, and in some ways this goes back and just really emphasizes what a pivotal, uh, what a pivotal character Abinadi is in the entire Book of Mormon. We only get a few chapters of his teachings uh, and before he's killed, but it's really him coming to King Noah starts so many different uh, events put so many different things in motion that, that really uh, impact the entire Book of Mormon for hundreds of years to come. Uh, very, very interesting. And one of them is you get these Amulonites, and uh, they're, they're eventually chased down and killed by the other Nephites that they, uh, that they had fled to and had uh, convinced and, and taken advantage of. Um, and so uh, this begins a, a, another period of, of, of wars, uh, but those wars eventually come to an end. And uh, as 
uh, it looks like peace is about to uh, come about, at least for, for a short little while. We see many more people uh, joining uh, the anti-Nephi Lehi's uh, and being converted unto the gospel. Which leads us to chapter 26. And uh, chapter 26 is uh, this, a beautiful uh, soliloquy really given by, by Ammon, um, who glories in God, glories in, in the success that he's had as, as a missionary. Um, and, and let's uh, start by reading verse 5. But behold, the field was right, and blessed are ye, for ye thrust in your, the sickle, and did reap with your might. Yea, all the day long did ye labor, and behold, the number of your sheaves, and they shall be gathered into the garners, that they are not wasted. So this is Ammon talking about how uh, amazing, the amazing success that they have had as missionaries. And he uses this uh, analogy that, uh, of the wheat and the sheaves that Elder Bednar helps to explain. Uh, he'll help to explain in a, uh, a talk in April 2009 general conference where he said, The sheaves in this analogy represent newly baptized members of the church. The garners are the holy temples. Elder Neil A. Maxwell explained, Clearly when we baptize, our eyes should gaze beyond the baptismal font to the holy temple. The great garner into which the sheaves should be gathered is the holy temple. This instruction clarifies and emphasizes the importance of sacred temple ordinances and covenants that the sheaves may not be wasted. Now, obviously the situation uh, was very different when Ammon and Aaron and uh, the other sons of Messiah went out to teach the gospel. There was no uniform church, such as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that they would baptize them into. And there certainly were no, uh, as far as we know, there weren't temples where they could go and receive uh, sacred ordinances. But that is the analogy that Elder Bednar quotes Elder Maxwell uh, from, based on this scripture. Uh, and, and, and the reason is clear. It's because the temples are where we make the higher covenants. Uh, the baptismal font um, for, for the new converts to the church today or for those that were the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as they buried their weapons of war and covenanted with God, uh, those, those initial covenants that we make are good and excellent and wonderful, absolutely no doubt about that. But we should always be looking to the higher covenants, the higher commitments, the, the higher signs that these individuals that are baptized, these that are, that are expressive willingness to, to join the people of God and to enter into initial covenants with Christ, we should be looking for and expecting and hoping that they will have a desire to enter into greater covenants, further solidifying their commitment to Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what we do in the temple we enter into higher covenants with God where we commit more than we committed at the time of baptism. And as a result, we learn more than we knew at the time of baptism and we are blessed spiritually more than we were blessed at the time of baptism as well. So it's always to the temple that we look to try to drive, uh, whether it be new members that join the church because they were uh, converted through the efforts of members or missionaries or certainly our children as well. It's the temple that is the goal 
that we should strive for because it because of its ability to uh, to bring about a long-term commitment not just a social commitment not just a uh, I do it because my friends do it or because my family does it type of uh, somewhat superficial commitment but long-term deep commitment and conversion that comes through the temple uh, further in chapter uh, chapter 26 then verses 11 through 12 but Ammon said unto him I do not boast in my own strength nor in my own wisdom but behold my joy is full yea my heart is brim with joy and I will rejoice in my God yea I know that I am nothing as to my strength I am weak therefore I will not boast of myself but I will boast of my God for in his strength I can do all things yea behold many mighty miracles we have wrought in this land for which we will praise his name forever. And I share these few verses, and, and what had happened here was uh, Aaron was starting to rebuke Ammon because Ammon seemed to be getting a little bit carried away and, and some, of his, some of his claims and some of the successes that he had. Uh, but Ammon says, no, I'm not boasting of myself or my own strength. I know that I am nothing, uh, but I am boasting in God and what he was able to do through me the changes and the improvements in people's lives that he was able to bring forth through me, through me being an instrument in his hands. And I particularly love these verses because uh, I don't know if everyone still does this, but when I went on my mission, they, they had a, a plaque with a picture, and in my case, a, a, a little map of Taiwan next to it because that's where I had been called. And then I got to pick a scripture, and, and this was the scripture that I picked because it expressed uh, my feelings well as to how I felt about uh, my efforts, uh, how I hoped my efforts as a missionary would be, that they would be both successful and that I would be an instrument uh, in God's hands. Uh, verse 15. Yea, they were encircled about with everlasting darkness and destruction, but behold, he has brought them into his everlasting light, yea, into everlasting salvation, and they are encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love, Yea, and we have been instruments in his hands of doing this great and marvelous work. And I love the imagery here. It starts with these Ammon expressing that the Lamanites were previously encircled about by darkness. And we know what's that, what that's like. We can think of instances in which we've been encircled by darkness where there's no light around us. We don't know our direction. We don't know where to go. And quite frankly, we're very vulnerable to, to really anything. But as Ammon and his brethren came in, they were able to be instruments in the hands of the Lord and providing a little bit of light to the Lamanites. And as they accepted that light, they began to be encircled about by it. And whereas previously they were encircled about by darkness, it says in verse 15, they are then encircled about with the matchless bounty of his love. And that is, uh, that is a beautiful way of understanding what the atonement is. It's being encircled about by the love of God. It's being encircled through his arms, uh, in his arms, through his love. Uh, one analogy that, that I've, I've used in the past before, in Hong Kong, uh, when we go through the subway, there are these, these gates that you have to go through. And my, my second daughter, when we first moved to Hong Kong, 
she was terrified of some of the gates. There were these gates that, uh, these, these doors that uh, they're normally like this, and then when you tap your card on it, they open up, and then once you pass through, then they close again. And uh, little Abriana, uh, when she was very young, my second daughter, uh, she was terrified of these gates. She just knew that as soon as it opened up and she started to go through, this thing was going to smash her. And at most, uh, most MTR stations, you got a, a turnstile for some and, a, and then the gates for others. And so she would always choose the turnstile because that seemed uh, much less dangerous to her. But I remember one day we got to an MTR station that only had the closing gates. And she was frozen. She would not move. She didn't know how she was going to get to that other side. And so as her father, what was I going to do? Well, the answer was obvious. I picked her up and circled her about in my arms of love. And I carried her through that gate. <clears throat> and in my mind, I think that's one way that the atonement works in our lives. We come upon challenges that we confront that we don't know how we're going to get through. And God picks us up and circles us about in the arms of his love and carries us through to the other side. And that's the exact imagery that Ammon is using here. They go from being encircled about by darkness to being encircled about by the arms of love, by the love of God, by his grace, by his mercy. And Ammon is grateful that he was able to be a missionary, that he was able to help dispel that light or that that darkness and help them to feel the love of God which is always there it's just a question of whether or not we will recognize it and whether or not we will let it carry us through the darkness and through the scary events through the uncertainty of life uh, then chapter uh, 27 so we'll leave behind uh, tw chapter 26 it's a, it's a beautiful chapter with as Ammon just goes on and on and praising God and talking about the incredible success that they've had. It's always been one of my favorite chapters. But we'll move on to chapter 27. Uh, the Amalekites, uh, who are not happy that they couldn't defeat the Nephites, that they're unhappy that these wars that they've been fighting uh, with the Nephites have come to a close. And so I guess they're just war-loving people. They always have to be fighting someone. So since they can't fight the Nephites, they come back and they come home and they start to turn their attention to the anti-Nephi Lehi's. And so they start, uh, they start preparing uh, plans to attack them. And so for a second time, uh, Ammon and the other sons of Messiah see the people that they love, these people that they've helped to convert to the gospel. And they remember last time when these people were slaughtered by by other Lamanites, and they don't want to see it happen again. They know how, how strong their convictions are, that they are unwilling to take up their weapons of war. And so because of that, Ammon says, look, there's got to be another way. You guys don't have to die. And he says, Hi, how, about we, how about you guys go and become part of the Nephite nation? And uh, the king of the Lamanites says, well, I don't know if the Nephites will take us. We've done some pretty bad things. And Ammon says, you know what, I'm going to go ask the Lord. I'm going to go ask the Lord if it's okay, if it'll be okay for you guys to go and join the Nephites. And that's interesting that he would ask the Lord this question. Because whenever you ask the Lord a question, 
it's always possible that he's not going to give you the answer that you want. And we had a perfectly good example of that just a few chapters ago. When, uh, when, uh, when Alma and Amulek saw the Nephites that they had helped convert among the people of Ammonihah, when they saw these beautiful women and children murdered as they were thrown into the fire, Alma had asked the Lord, can I save them? And the answer the Lord gave them was, no, this is not the time. And so it would have been possible that when Ammon went and asked the Lord, he, the Lord very easily could have said, you know, no, they're not supposed to go and join the Nephites. Remember all the good that happened last time? Even though a thousand people lost their lives, you had more than a thousand people come to me. It's possible the Lord's answer would have been, let's let that happen again. So I think it took a lot of faith to say, let's go ask the Lord. Perhaps if I would have been Ammon there, I would have thought to myself, I, shucks, I don't need to ask the Lord. I know my, my people, the Nephites, are going to willingly accept these wonderful converts that I love so much. Why wouldn't they? I'm not going to ask the Lord. I'll just, let's just go ahead and do it. Get it done. Why, why even bother? So I, I, I love the faith that Ammon has in the Lord and that the Lamanites have in the Lord. In this situation, they wanted to do what was right. They wanted to know the Lord's will. And of course, that's not to say that we ask the Lord every single question in our life. I, I do believe that he gave us all brains that are capable of working. And there's a lot of times when we ask the Lord. And I had one instant example of that myself. I had an opportunity to, to switch law firms uh, about eight years ago. And uh, I asked the Lord and I felt good about switching. And then... Something happened and I was convinced that, well, maybe I actually shouldn't switch. And so I asked the Lord again and the answer I got that time was, Ben, what do you want to do? I don't care. You can work for whatever firm you want to. Just as long as you keep my commandments. So I don't think it's necessary that we ask the Lord every single question. So we have to use discretion as we do so. But certainly in this instance, Ammon felt it was appropriate and he did so. And thank goodness, the, the answer that the Lord gave him was, yes, let's save these people. And so Ammon goes and he talks uh, to the Nephites and says, hey, can we, can we bring them here? And on his way back, he runs into Alma. And uh, that's the, the joyous reunion that started chapter 17, if you recall. And then they go and talk to the, to the Nephites and they take a vote and they say, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's welcome these people. We got this little plot of land land called a little place called Jershon and we'll, we'll put them there and uh, they can they can they can enjoy that place and we'll even protect them uh, verses uh, so in chapter 27 let's read verses 27 through 28 and they were among the people of Nephi and also numbered among the people who are of the church of God and they were also distinguished for their zeal towards God and also towards men for they were perfectly honest and upright in all things and they were firm in the faith of Christ, even unto the end. And they did look upon shedding of blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence. And they never could be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. And they never did look upon death with any degree of terror. For their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Now I think we should all strive to be as truly converted as these uh, wonderful saints were 
that they could never be persuaded, they would never ever be persuaded to take up arms, to do anything, to return to their old ways. They had buried their old ways, their weapons, deep within the earth, and they would never take those up again. And I think their view of death is also uh, worth considering. As it said, they weren't even afraid of death because so firm was their faith in Jesus Christ uh, that, that they knew it was just something that was inevitable that would happen, and once they got through it, they would be with Christ again. So to them, that was something that, that was not a big concern. Now, with that, I, I think it's worth uh, thinking about, you know, what, what should our views of death be? And as, you know, as I gave uh, the lesson two weeks ago uh, about uh, the, the people of Ammonihah that had been murdered, the saints that had been burned, um, and I talked about what a, what a tragedy that was and what an enormous impact that I believe it had upon Alma. Um, you know, there, there was a, a great comment by, by someone uh, watching, this video, watching the video uh, who, who made the comment that, you know, it's, it's, you know, death is not such a bad thing. And that's what it actually says uh, in those few verses, that, that there was a reason that had to happen and those people were saved right away. So really not necessary to, to be so sad and so concerned about it. And, and I think that's absolutely right. We, we don't need to be so sad and we don't need to be so concerned about death because we have that beautiful eternal perspective of the gospel that we know uh, that death is not the end. And we know uh, that is, we've been keeping the commandments that, that death is just the new beginning of something even more wonderful than we're experiencing here. But at the same time, I think it's worth remembering that even though we have that eternal perspective and even though uh, we, we know that death is just the beginning of something wonderful and something, something new, a necessary step in the plan of salvation, I, I think we have to be careful, though, that because of that, uh, we, we don't take a position where we're not moved by the suffering of others. I think we have to be careful, and I'm not at all implying that that's what the, the, who, the, the commenter uh, intended by that. Um, but I think it's just interesting to think of one of the, the struggles, I think, with being uh, a, a disciple of Christ and one who believes in the resurrection is that we are, it puts us in this uh, somewhat a paradoxical position. And that while on the one hand, we know death is just, again, the beginning of something new and wonderful. But on the other hand, we, we shouldn't let in any way that understanding uh, make us numb to the realities and to the sorrow and the suffering that happen in this world. If we see somebody struggling and, you know, someone's loved one dies or someone has some great sickness, it'd be terribly inappropriate to say, oh, don't worry about it. You got the plan of salvation. Just have faith and everything will work out. You know, with someone who's been in the position where, you know, someone, you know, people I care about deeply have unexpectedly passed, uh, you know, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. Um, we need to be able to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort, while at the same time maintaining our faith in the plan of salvation. So that's why I say it's a paradox, because the great love, the charity that we should have for other people and our desire to mourn with those who mourn should make it so that we look upon the suffering of others and we are moved, we are heartbroken along with them, and we desire to comfort them and to sit with them and to help them get through the challenges that they're facing. 
but just telling them, oh, don't worry about it, the plan of salvation has it covered, doesn't help. It doesn't. Sometimes you, somebody doesn't need to be reminded that everything's going to be okay. Sometimes you just need a shoulder to cry on. You just need someone to bear your soul to. You just need someone to say, yeah, I know this is hard. And I don't know how you feel. And I'm here for you if you need me. And uh, so that's, you know, one of the challenges I think that we face as saints is that we, we live in this paradoxical world where we love others deeply and we want to mourn with them. We should feel more deeply than anyone else as we see suffering and we should be moved by it while at the same time remembering, put, being able to put death in its proper perspective or really any other tragedy as well. Well, chapter 28, uh, the Lamanites end up following uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as they escape. And, uh, and the people of Ammon, as they're now called, uh, as they settle in the land of Nephi, a, a, is, and they're pursued by the Lamanites, a massive war ensues. And we're told that this is the war to end all wars, at least up to this time. Um, and it's a terrible, horrible thing. Uh, but we get some great insights uh, in the end of chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. And thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression and the power of the devil, which comes by the cunning plans which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. And thus we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. And thus we see the great reason of sorrow and also of rejoicing, Sorrow because, because of death and destruction among men, and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. Interesting comment on inequality here. And that's the exact word that, that, that is used here by Mormon in this little, this is certainly an editorial provided by, by Mormon, a conclusion that he's drawing. We have great inequality among man. Why? Because of sin and transgression. Now, inequality is something that different cultures across the world struggle with. And certainly in the United States, that's been something that uh, has, has, has been a huge issue within the past few weeks. We've seen uh, riots and uh, huge protests uh, because of frustration over persistent inequality. And I'm not going to get political here, but Mormon's commentary on that is, the true inequality that exists in the world is not inequality of access to resources or access to opportunities. Inequality exists because of sin and transgression. Because when you sin, you are trapped. You are in the chains of the devil, of Satan, and he is not going to let you out unless you make the decision to repent. And that is the true cause of inequality, uh, according to Mormon. And so, as uh, the sons of Messiah were out doing missionary work, what were they, in fact, doing? They were fighting against inequality. And so, it's my view that the best way that we can fight inequality is by sharing with others our testimony of the gospel. Of course, we have to do so in ways that they'll understand in their language, as we'll read about uh, in the very next chapter. But... Uh, but that inequality that's persistent, the only anecdote to it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now chapter 29. And this one is just kind of thrown in 
in the middle. In some ways, it's kind of an out-of-place chapter, but it is such a beautiful chapter. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, discussing it. And it's important as we discuss chapter 29, this is Alma's uh, soliloquy, his sorrow, his psalm, if you will, um, expressing the deep feelings of his soul. Remember the last time we saw Alma was right after what happened in Ammonihah, that horrible disaster of a situation in which men and women were killed because he, sorry, women and children were murdered uh, because, he, because they believed the gospel message that he taught. And again, it's my view that this was hard on Alma. And then we compare that with the success of the sons of Messiah in converting people to the Lord. So, and it's, I mean, in some ways, you, really, I love this chapter because it lets you into the soul of Alma. You, you see, on, on the one hand, he's just so heartbroken because the few people in Ammonihah that heard his words ended up being murdered for it. And then you compare that to the sons of Messiah who went out amongst the Lamanites, these people that nobody said could ever be converted, and they brought thousands unto Christ. Uh, and in and, and chapter 26, you have Ammon going on and on about the amazing success that they've had, that they've been instruments in the Lord's hands. And you see Alma saying, yeah, good for you guys. I had a few converts too, and they were burned to death. You know, you get, you get this, it's almost like a pity party that Alma's having for himself. And, and I love that. You can see how raw this is. You can see how, how emotional Alma is. Uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 29. Oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of mine heart, that I might go forth and speak with the trump of God, with the voice to shake the earth and cry repentance unto every people. Yea, I would declare unto every soul as with the voice of thunder, repentance and the plan of, of redemption, that they should repent and come unto our God, that there might not be more sorrow upon the face of the earth. You can see Alma just saying, man, I wish I had the power to convert everyone. I wish this is what I could do. I wish I could make every single person in the world believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 3. But behold, I am a man and do sin in my wish, for I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. I love that moment of self-reflection by Alma. I think it's beautiful. And it tells us what a beautiful soul he has. Because verses 1 and 2 doesn't seem to be like an unrighteous wish. Remember, this is a man who himself was converted by an angel. That came and completely shook his earth, rocked his world, destroyed the worldview, the foundation that he had built his life upon. And it was an angel that did that. Now, of course, we know it was through prayer and fasting, that he eventually was completely converted and gained his testimony. But what he's saying from Alma seems to be a pretty reasonable thing. I saw an angel and it changed my life. I wish I could do that for other people. I wish I could be that angel. I wish I could go about and rock other people's worlds, that they could be converted and that they could enjoy the same blessings that I have because I saw an angel. Why can't I do that? And then in verse 3, as he thinks further, he says, I know I can't. Because that's not what the Lord has in store for me. And you can almost hear him saying, I don't know why the Lord chose to send an angel to me. I don't know why I'm so lucky. 
but I'm grateful that I was and I ought to be content with my lot. I ought to be content with what the Lord has given to me. Uh, Elder Uchtdorf in, uh, in uh, April 2014 conference made the following statement. We sometimes think that being grateful is what we do after our problems have solved, but how terribly short-sighted that is. How much of life do we miss by waiting to see the rainbow before thanking God that there is rain? Being grateful in times of distress does not mean that we are pleased with our circumstances. It does mean that through the eyes of faith, we look beyond our present-day challenges. That is not a gratitude of the lips, but of the soul. It is a gratitude that heals the heart and expands the mind. And that is the type of gratitude that Alma is talking about here. Again, his desire seems completely reasonable and beautiful and rational to him. But he recognizes that it is so important for us to be grateful for what the Lord has given to us. And if the Lord isn't permitting me to be an angel right now, well, then I guess I should be happy with being, in Alma's case, a missionary. In my case, someone that posts videos once a week that a few people watch. Or whatever your situation happens to be. Are we grateful for the position that the Lord has given to us? And that's especially challenging in a church in which you don't, in which we have a lay clergy, in which sometimes callings seem to come at random. You know, how often have you uh, looked at your bishop or your, your Relief Society president and thought that person has no idea what they're doing? I could do such a better job. Or, you know, do you have expectations that haven't been fulfilled or callings that you desire? perhaps for, you know, almost certainly for good reasons, for ways of blessing other people's lives. But the opportunity, for whatever reason, never came. We should follow Alma's advice, follow his example, and be grateful for what the Lord has given to us. And I love, again, that, 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 that uh, quote from uh, President Uchtdorf, that, uh, you know, it's, it's not being, uh, you know, it's, it's not something we do once our problems are solved. But it's, uh, it's, it's something that happens uh, as we are going through problems. And if we can be grateful as we are going through our problems, that is true gratitude. That is true faith. And that is that, as we talked about at the beginning of that lesson, that, that, that faith in God that doesn't necessarily require all the answers. You see, Alma here, he's, he's not certain about a few things. He doesn't understand why he got to see an angel, but why when he taught the same message that the angel taught to him to other people, they ended up getting burned to death. That's a big question mark to him. But he has faith. And he knows that even though he has this question mark, that God is there, that God loves him, and that God loves all of his children. Verse 4. I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire, whether it be unto death or unto life. Yea, I know that he allotteth unto men, ye decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable according to their wills, whether they be unto salvation or unto destruction. Again, we see this great faith that Alma has in God. And, and this is such a powerful concept too that God gives us according to our desires. If we desire life, God gives us life. If we desire destruction, God gives us destruction. God gives us according to desires. So the question is, what do we truly desire? 
And desire is not just say it and it happens. Desire is the result of what we actually do with our time. The desire is the, is the result of what we do with our lives. And if we use our lives in ways that, that further our life, that bring us closer to Christ, closer to eternal life, well, that is what we're going to receive. Or if we spend our time uh, caught in other worldly uh, pursuits, focusing on the things of this earth, things that cannot be taken with us, then that is all that we will receive. And that is what we will inherit. And, in this, and once we leave this world, uh, we won't be in the same situation in which the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were. We will fear death because we won't have those beautiful things to look forward to. Beautiful, powerful, powerful concept. God gives us according to our desires, no matter what they be, whether, to be, whether they to be death, unto death or unto life. And then verses 8 and 9. For behold, the Lord doth grant unto all nations of their own nation and tongue to teach his word, yea, in wisdom, all that he seeth fit that they should have. Therefore we see that the Lord doth counsel in wisdom according to that which is just and true. I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, and I glory in it. I do not glory of myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. Yea, and this is my glory, that perhaps I might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance. And this is my joy. So I love how Alma's conclusion is the exact same conclusion of the sons of Mosiah. And even though to him, as he's recording these things, it seems like, oh, why couldn't I have been a successful missionary like they were? Which, based on the stories that we have of Alma, we know is not true. We know he was an unbelievable missionary. And, you know, he taught powerful doctrines and led the church. But it seems like to him, he's kind of in the midst of a self-pity party because the sons of Messiah did so well. But the conclusion is the same. His feelings is the same as the sons of Messiah. He just wants to be an instrument in the hands of God and blessing the lives of other people. And hopefully his desires, his, his, his wants here, which is the same wants as the sons of Messiah as expressed in Alma 26, should be our desires as well that we desire to bless the lives of other people, to be an instrument in the Lord's hands in helping other people come unto Christ, that they might be saved, that they might have the same opportunity to receive that which they desire. And I hope that that, that is our desire, to help others come unto Christ. And I finish this lesson and, and leave my testimony that as we help others come unto Christ, we too will feel that great joy that Alma and that Ammon and Aaron and, and the rest of these unbelievable missionaries felt. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.